Hello, everyone. Welcome to Mindfulness Monday, November 2nd. We're one day, one day, yes, before the elections, and I encourage everyone to go out and vote. You know, whether left or right, Republican or Democrat, progressive or conservative, one topic that is important to all of us is how we can safely and successfully invest our hard earned monies for the future, especially now when there seems to be so much uncertainty about the days ahead and the economy. My special guest today is gonna to help guide us at a time when we could really use wise advice about future investments because he's been writing about it even before the near collapse of the global economy in 2008 when millions of Americans were nervous tethering their financial futures to so many unfamiliar unreliable and unethical financiers as he writes about in his new book let me tell you a little bit about him Michael H Schumann is an economist attorney author entrepreneur and leading visionary on community economics. He is the director of local economy programs for Neighborhood Associates Corporation, a nonprofit affordable housing company and an adjunct instructor at Bard College's Business School in New York City. A renowned local economy advocate he is the author of 10 books, including The Small Mart Revolution, Local Dollars, Local Sense, The Local Economy Solution, and Put Your Money Where Your Life Is, How to Invest Locally Using Self-Directed IRAs and Solo 401ks, which we are gonna talk about today. Welcome to Mindfulness Monday, Michael. Great to be with you. So wonderful, so much to talk about with you today. I know we're gonna spend a very interesting time educating our viewers on the various forms of investment. So, you know, let's begin with why you wrote this book and why you feel it's so important, especially right now for people to know what to do with their money at a time of such economic stress and uncertainty. Well, as you've mentioned, I've written a bunch of books over my lifetime, and each book kind of opens up a door to the next one. And so some of my earlier books were all about the importance of local economies, locally owned business. And we know that locally owned businesses comprise between 60 and 80 percent of a typical economy in terms of its jobs and its output. And, you know, so that's most of the economy. And yet, you know, what I discovered over the years is that as you ask people, well, okay, we know that these businesses are critical for your well-being. We also can show data that they're profitable and they're competitive. Where, by the way, are you putting your money? How many of you, I often ask an audience, uh, put at least 1% of your pension funds in locally owned business? And all the hands go down. And what it shows is that people are systematically over-investing in the global companies they distrust 
and underinvesting in the local businesses they know in their heart are critical for community well-being. So I wrote this book in order to help people do their part to fix this problem. Did you have a particular demographic in mind when you wrote the book? Or is this pretty much something that you want everybody to be aware of? You know? I try to be mindful of all kinds of demographics. I have uh, two kids, uh, one 18, one 21. And I, I sort of have despaired about getting their demographic involved. But I think when you get a little bit older uh, and you start getting paid by someone and you get money taken out for some form of retirement fund, then you start thinking about what's this all about. So I think anyone who is sort of in that universe of you're working or putting away money or you... Uh, have already put away money and are figuring out what to do with it. That's the demographic I'm interested in. I also think the young demographic, I mean, I, I know someone whose uh, uh, who's, uh, daughter wrote her college thesis on the fact that they're the generation, whatever it is, the millennials, the the X's, the Y's, whatever, whatever's coming up quickly as we speak, that they're not a generation that really plans for the future. Like they're, they really don't, they, this is a whole, not a, not a concrete concept for them. Do you know, that's why I asked you if you had a particular demographic in mind, you know, yeah. everybody can benefit from your book clearly. Yeah, I think, no, I think that's right. And I think part of that is that uh, one of the failures of, I'll call it my generation, because I think uh, you're probably somewhat younger. Um, but you. one of the failures of my generation is that um, we aren't leaving a legacy for kids that's better uh, than we had it, which was true for, you know, many previous generations. And I think kids look at the future, and I say kids broadly, but I really mean young adults as well. They look broadly at the future with climate change and a sort of dysfunctional democracy and politics. It's why everyone is on pins and needles about the election tomorrow. And I, I understand why in the face of that, it's really hard to think about the future. Um, but you know, nevertheless, we have to find within ourselves those that reservoir of optimism, survival of yeah. caring about the planet and, and do something. Exactly. Not get too caught up in the sort of the dystopia nihilistic right. feelings about what's going on right now, which the younger generations might might get into that. You know, you say that the American dream, the American dream is alive but fraying. What what do you mean by that? I think that the American dream, when I look at my father and, and the kind of world that he created for myself and my sister. So I was born in the middle 1950s. Um, and it was a world where, you know, one middle income earner like my dad who worked his entire life for the phone company could generate healthcare for everyone, a pension that my mother now 97 still lives on. Uh, it could generate uh, a good house and a, with a good public school system. Um, and it could put two kids to college, right? So that was, those were all pieces of the American dream. And I think 
almost none of that is true right now. Mm -hmm. um, you know, we, we know that uh, it's usually now two parents that have to work more than a job each in order to make ends meet. Uh, housing has become unaffordable for millions of Americans. And as this pandemic works its way through, millions more will find themselves on the streets. Um, I think that uh, the ability to go to college now is much more out of reach uh, for for kids who come from middle class families. Uh, I don't think you know my kids have quite the same ability to to go to college that I did when I was a kid. Um, and I think that uh, our ability to put away money for retirement is fundamentally at risk. Here's here's the sort of shocking thing, which is that when you look at the what the average American has in retirement savings, it really is a couple of tens of thousands of dollars, basically enough to pay for groceries for the rest of their life. So true, you know, we have social security, but even the social security system is fraying and, you know, we can't necessarily be confident that it's going to be alive at the same level. So I think we, we have enormous insecurity uh, that we have to fix. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Yeah, understandably, and especially now when, you know, things seem very uncertain and precarious. You know, you write that, and I want to I want to go into the different types of investing that you speak of throughout the book. You write in your book that we care about the shops and people in our daily lives, but we do not know how to apply this intention to our own money. So explain what you mean by this to our listeners. Well, what I mean is that the things and people we care most about are the things we have in our day-to-day -day lives. So it's ourselves, our kids, our home, our community, the places where we do shopping. And for the most part, people, when they think about their investment, don't put their money in any of that. They're putting their money in long distance corporations that they know little about. They trust that they're going to do okay on a stock market that goes up and down without explanation. And, and it really, it's kind of a nutty bit of behavior. And what's so interesting to me is that even people who are enormously distrustful of Wall Street and you know, sort of mainstream business. And this is both people on the on the left who, you know, right. you know, want to want to uh, get rid of Wall Street, and people on the right who want to like put Main Street front and center. And yet, when it comes to their investing, they haven't figured out a way to avoid it. And that's really what I'm trying to do. So I'm trying to show people that there are relatively easy and straightforward ways that you can put your money in yourself, your kids, your community, and the businesses you care about. I think that's what's so great about your book. I mean, it really introduced me to those concepts, which I had never thought about otherwise. You know, I really didn't. You know, so I want to I want to go into those types of investing that you speak about. So you write about local investing and social investing. So can you explain to our listeners, Michael, the difference between those types of investing and what are the benefits of the local investing that you're very much in favor of or social investing? Right. So 
in a way, um, the world of investing has gone through a set of stages over the last 50 years. So, you know, you go back to the early 1960s and um, the um, Milton Friedman, who was the avatar of free enterprise, wrote a piece for the New York Times magazine stating that the social responsibility of business is to maximize its profits for shareholders, period. And that, I think, is, it probably remains still as the conventional view when people put their money into pension funds or mutual funds. Uh, their expectation is only that the fiduciary maximize rates of return. Somewhere around the late 60s, early 70s, we had a group of pension funds that said, you know what? Um, some of our investors feel very upset when they see their money going into tobacco or nuclear weapons or apartheid South Africa. So they started to screen. And in a way, the screens were negative, things that would not be put into the portfolio. It still was global companies, but it was global companies absent tobacco and weapons and apartheid. Um, that then morphed still further into, well, maybe you can invest in businesses that are not just not doing bad things, but are doing good things. So mm -hmm. things like investing in Ben and Jerry's, um, which, you know, was like basically tucking the cows into bed every night and um, a million kinds, kinds of wonderful <laughs> flavors and great community work for yes. Vermont. Absolutely. Um, but the problem with all of these investments is, is that they're still non-local. They're still publicly traded companies. And publicly traded companies, almost by definition, are very strongly inclined to focus on their bottom line rather than on their social impacts. Now, I should say, you know, I, I teach at Bard Business School. The class I teach is uh, you know, uh, sustaining your mission. And I teach students how to take conventional companies through a social assessment uh, so that we can improve even big companies' performance with respect to the workers, environment, community, and governance. So it can be done, and it's important that it be done. But what I would argue is that almost by definition, the best businesses for your community are your, going to be your locally owned businesses. We know that these businesses, for every dollar you spend on them, generate two to four times the economic development benefits, jobs, income, wealth, taxes, charitable contributions. And this is what drives the economy. And if you reinvest in your local businesses, especially now when they're struggling during a time of COVID, yeah. right? Yeah, this a rebuilding potential, which is which is exciting, you know, it really is. It, yet rebuilding and the benefits come back to you not just as your private rate of return. Uh, the interest, say, you would get on a, on a loan you might extend to a business, but also a social rate of return, because as those businesses do better, your tax rate does, tax, tax um, base does better, and so do your police and your public schools and so forth. 
you know, it just, it just brings to mind, it's like conscious, conscious investing. I mean, you're, you have a level, I mean, which to me, I mean, not to sound altruistic and people want to be able to know that they're investing in something that they're, you know, their ROIs are going to be beneficial to what they're investing in. But I love what you're really introducing because it just, it, these are concepts that I've never really thought of before. Do you know, it's like, it's, and what comes to mind is conscious investing. Do you know, especially now with this, um, with this, like, you know, without going into too many other directions, it's like, you know, the big companies or the big families or the big donors who are behind these big pharmaceutical, you know what, I, you know what I'm talking about, you know, it's, it, yes. and, and it's scary to think of where this money is going. Yes. It seems like the antithesis of conscious investing, you know? Yeah, yeah I, I agree. And, I, I think it's, you know, one one reasonable way to think about of investing evolution is like to compare it to Maslow's hierarchy of needs mm -hmm. that we, you know, we should really start as investors by focusing on our basic needs. So, okay, you need some rate of return, but honestly, millions of Americans, even, even I would say go so far to say is probably as many as half of all Americans are in some form of serious financial stress. Right. That stress usually expresses itself as credit card debt. Right. But it may also be that they're in hot water with their house or hot water because of their healthcare expenses. These individuals, the first and foremost priority of any investment is to get themselves out of debt. Right. And anyone who convinces them to do something else with their money is fooling them. Um, and so, you know, I, I have been, I went through, one of the things I write about in the book is my own kind of uh, consciousness raising around this. Uh, 12 years ago, uh, I, I talk about that my own life simultaneously went through unemployment, divorce, uh, health problems, all at a point of financial crisis you, in 2008. You next question about the personal, your personal story, which I want you to share as much as you want as you can, because I was going to ask you, why do you have such a, how long have you had this, this passion for local investing? And when did you become a local economy advocate? And when I read your personal story, it made sense to me. Yeah. So, I mean, here here is the dirty secret to that that question, which is that um, since the day I was graduated from law school, I've spent a third of my time on the road, uh, and often I, I I and I'm talking about the, you know starting in the mid 1980s. So basically, my entire life is a political campaign that never has an election. Um, and so, you know, it's always being out there. And I have just, I love communities that I visit. I love uh, the businesses that I get to know and support and the entrepreneurs. I love local elected officials and I love them in both red states and blue states. Um, I've learned to sort of negotiate this sort of purplish politics of putting together the social responsibility of the left with the decentralism of the right. Uh, right. And, but I, you know, and, and as I have, um, I, I mean, I wrote a book on local economies in 1990, 
six. That was my first book called Going Local, first first book on local economies. And I thought it would be a one-off. And then it just opened up questions and interest and feedback. And I started to work in more communities. And then, as, as I said, as more doors opened up, I just got deeper and deeper in it. And it's also been an area, you know, I look at um, some of my peers or people who are a little older than me who got involved in political activism in the 1960s. So I was still a kid then. Uh, and, you know, despite their activism, uh, 50,000 Americans came back dead from Vietnam. So they, you know, there's like not a complete feeling of success. I have seen some amazing successes just in the last 10 years, you know, a relatively small group of us have changed national and state laws that make local investing significantly cheaper and easier and have opened up this whole universe. And um, I mean, to me, after spending a lifetime affiliated with losing causes, winning some of these causes has been not slightly disorienting. Mm -hmm. Why don't you give us some examples of, so that people can get a sense of what that looks like, local investing versus social investing. Like, like explain to them what that looks like so they can begin to really entertain these concepts but, of investing. Right, so, so the goal hopefully is you, you invest locally with your social objectives in mind. So, you know, I think the places to start in terms of investing are in yourself, getting yourself out of debt and improving your financial situation. You might invest in your kids and getting them, say, out of student loan debt. Right. You might invest in becoming a homeowner, which is getting yourself out of the difficulty of being a renter. Or if you own a home, you might try to get uh, to invest in owning your home faster, uh, or you might invest in your own energy system or greenhouse or high efficiency automobile. Um, and then, so, so those are the things that you might invest in yourself on. And then you start looking around yourself and you say, well, I could invest in my food co-op. I could invest in various local businesses that I love. Uh, I could invest in local investment funds. My city might be issuing municipal bonds that I could invest in. Um, I might invest in local nonprofits, say a church or a club that wants to buy a piece of property. Um, so these options are all around us and it's like, you know, fish and water, we're surrounded in it yet we're not necessarily aware that it's there. Right. I mean, something like investing in a nonprofit, it almost sounds like, well, what kind of investment can I make in a nonprofit? Just being a nonprofit, you know, right. raises the question of. And what people, uh, people forget is that a nonprofit at the end of the day is somewhat of a business. They need a place to operate out of. That place usually commands rent. And that rent is a fairly big chunk of what they're raising money around every year. So if you can help that nonprofit acquire a piece of property by lending it money, 
then the nonprofit is strengthened and effectively that property serves as its endowment. Mm -hmm. So, you know, we sort of pull nonprofits to the next level of success doing this. Right. I mean, I know the sentiment, and especially now, as you mentioned, and it's, it's, you know, we'll see what happens. You know, I'm a very, I'm a perennial optimist, but, you know, that the whole idea of, you know, support small businesses, that's a sentiment that I think a lot of us can relate to. I mean, I'm here in Los Angeles, it's a big city, but that's been really sort of in the zeitgeist lately, you know, support small businesses is, is really important. I think that's something that each and every one of us can really take a closer look at. One of the main focuses of your book are the types of individual retirement investments, such as a self-directed IRA. Tell us what that is. You know, there are people that don't speak this language and they want to know. Right. So um, for your listeners who have uh, any form of long-term tax-deferred, perhaps pension-related savings, it usually falls into two categories. So one is... Uh, you might have set up an IRA, an individual retirement account. Uh, any person can do it, and you can put away, you know, somewhere around six, seven thousand dollars per year. And there's no age limit to, to for someone to open a self-directed. No uh, age limit, except except when you get to um, sort of the late fifties, then. Um, things become a little more complicated because you have to take money out starting in your 60s uh, from that for your so-called so retirement. You might be able to push it until 70-something, so um, to, uh, a little bit complicated. But then the other is that workplace-related uh, pension funds uh, often go with the designation of 401k, or if you're in a nonprofit, a 403b. Um, these are set up by your employer, and your employer then works with some fund, uh, say it could be, you know, Calvert um, or TIA-CREF, and they will then present you a bunch of options with which you can invest. And the thing is, is that irrespective, really, of where you work or who you've done your IRA with, chances are very good, and what I mean by very good is 99.9% .9 of the time, your only options are investing in global companies. And they, you know, they in a way kind of fool you into believing you've got many options. Well, you can invest in tech or manufacturing or big cap or medium cap or growth stocks or value stocks. But when you peel away the stuff, they're all traded companies on the stock exchange, right? So there's no real diversification in there. Um, what, what local investing begins to do says, okay, maybe I can create new options for myself, like the ones we just talked about. So any person is entitled to set up a self-directed IRA. You have and to be in the workforce, Michael, to do that? Nope, nope. Uh, any person, and you're still limited in the way that you are with an IRA to putting six or $7,000 per year in that. If you have any self-employment income, uh, and self, you know, this, this test could be $1, that you report on Schedule C 
uh, from say selling things on eBay, um, you can set up a solo 401k. And a solo 401k allows you to put away not six or 7,000, but honestly, in some circumstances, as much as you know, 60 or 120,000 a year. Um, and with a self-directed IRA, you have to go hire a custodian who then puts into effect your investment decisions. Is and there a cutoff age? Also, is there a cutoff age for a solo 401k? No. Okay, so there's no. Oh, no, right, no, no, no cutoff age on the solo 401k. Um, and so with, with the self-directed IRA, you know, you have to pay something like $300 a year if you shop around. Um, and this person will do all of the work for you, but you make your decisions about where you can invest. And you could use your solo 401k uh, to say, do a loan to your neighbor or uh, your sister, or you know, some, some nonprofit that you're really excited about. Hmm. Um, with a solo 401k, you administer the fund in your own designated bank account. So you have much more control. It also doesn't cost you $300 a year. You could do this for a one-time expense of $300 when you basically pay a company to give you the legal papers to be able to do this. And then the best thing about a solo 401k is that you can give yourself a loan, a personal loan of up to $50,000 per year. Wow, so interesting. And with that loan, you have to pay yourself back at a low interest rate over five years. But here's, let me just give you a very specific example of the benefit of this. Um, if you're in credit card debt, just take a $50,000 loan out of your solo 401k and then pay off that credit card debt and pay yourself back over five years. So instead of, you know, these massive interest payments going to Bank of America at some distant city, you're own interest payments go back into your own solo 401k and it's it's so much smoother and easier and better for yourself financially mm -hmm. and again i mean this should be a top priority for people now as they come out of the economic damage of covid19 mm, so important so interesting all the while maintaining you know always you know being mindful of one's credit card debts i mean you don't want to do that and then say, oh, well, then I can keep <laughs> my credit card debt going because I can keep paying it off in this way. Right. That's right. Which doesn't make, you know, isn't the way to do it. Is this also eligible now? Is the self-directed IRA and the solo 401k, are, is that eligible for people who have passive incomes, like people who are living off of trusts or inheritances? Absolutely. Um, so you do need a dollar of active income in order to set up the solo 401k. Um, and, um, you know, and, and there, you know, you probably need some sort of structure to continue to put money in, you know, that you, you, you could maybe use your trust fund to create a business and that business would generate an income stream and that stream could then go into your solo 401k. But really the way most people I think are going to do it 
is you set up a solo 401k with a very small amount of money to begin with. And then when you have left but your big what employer. Do you, what do you recommend when you say with a low, like what? Give us an example of that. I or mean, someone, let, I let's just say, let's just say for argument's sake, you do a hundred dollars, right? So you, you, you open up, uh, you spend $300 to put, I mean, put $100 into your solo 401k. But then in a few years, you leave your big employer. Um, you resign or you're fired or you retire. And then you can roll over all of the money in that conventional 401k into your solo 401k. And you then have the ability to be a basically a local investor with right, everything was, you got. Okay, that was my next question. So how can the money we put into these accounts be used for social or local investments? So here you've got, you know, how do you do that? Right. So, um, it, you know, with a self-directed IRA, for every investment that you make, you have to instruct and there's a little bit of paperwork with this you have to instruct your custodian uh please you know i want you to put money into this real estate project or i want you to put money in with this friend um and you know they'll they'll help draw up the paperwork around it with a solo 401k you have to do that yourself um I think a lot of people who go this direction actually like doing it themselves. It's it's easier and cheaper and more satisfying. Uh, but but one of the reasons that I wrote my book was to really lay out the rules for all of this so people don't get intimidated by it. Um, and with the solo 401k, I mean, I basically have an account in a bank that is representing my solo 401k and I just write a check as my investment. And, you know, depending on the investment, there may be other pieces of paper I need to sign. I sign those, but I sign those not in the name of myself, but in the name of my solo 401k account. So interesting. Wow. A lot to learn here. What's your opinion, Michael, though, about people who still might be um, interested in investing in huge companies such as Facebook, Google, and Microsoft from the retirement accounts that you mention in your book? You know, they want to go, they want to go in that direction. Yeah. So I, what I would say to say is to anyone, you know, whether or not you have great love for these companies is you're doing, you know, you've made a bunch of decisions about your investment portfolio, change them gradually. So, you know, maybe take, I don't know, a couple of percent of your portfolio and experiment with doing some of the things that we're talking about in this conversation. And if that feels good, you know, next year, add a couple of more percentage points. So at the end of the day, you know, for the next few years, you will still largely be invested in these bigger companies. But by doing a little bit of investment in smaller companies and other forms of local investment, you're doing a number of valuable things. First of all, you're providing real diversification to your portfolio. Right. right. I was like, you keep answering my next, which I love because, you know, it's always thought it's so sexy to invest in these big businesses, you know. And so, for somebody who's who's not aware of the local and why that might even look sexier on your in your portfolio by investing in both, like why they're not mutually exclusive. 
And they're not mutually exclusive. I mean, I, I hate to be absolutist about anything. Um, and I think, you know, local, the, the, so here's another truth about local investing is that right now in most places, local investing requires more work and a little bit more money uh, because you have to hire the custodian or you have to get the solo 401k document. It requires a little bit more work than conventional investing. I don't think that's going to be true 10 years from now, but it is true now. And, and what it means is that, you know, you, you really want to make, make some choices here based on, you know, what is your bandwidth for doing this? And a lot of people don't have the bandwidth to do a lot of investing. But, but let me just say, there's some things that you can invest locally and in that take no bandwidth at all. Municipal bonds, for example, people invest in municipal bonds all the time. And, you know, figuring out what are the municipal bonds that are connected to my community, that's not a very difficult assignment. Mm -hmm. Or investing in local real estate, people do that all the time. Uh, or, you know, some communities have local investment funds. So if you were lucky enough to live, uh, say, in Western Massachusetts, there's a nice fund there called PV Grows, Pioneer Valley Grows, which is invested in 35 local food businesses, and you can put your money in there. Interesting. Okay. What is a Roth uh, individual retirement account, IRA, and who is eligible for it? And if you could, you know, because we're, we're mentioning different uh, types of uh, investment accounts, what's the difference between the Roth IRA? self-directed IRA and the solo 401k. Great. And, and so, and this is the thing that, that all of this discussion of investment and tax tools, you know, you, one can layer on more and more pieces of complexity with all of this. So what we've talked about so far is uh, rather, you know, uh, let's call it vanilla flavored IRAs or 401ks. And uh, what I mean by that is you put your money in, it's you don't pay taxes on that money. And then when you pull the money out at some later point in your 60s or 70s or later, uh, you pay taxes at that point. And the idea is, is that your marginal tax rate um, when you are older is probably going to be a little bit lower than it was when you earned the money. So it is beneficial for you to do that. In addition, the money is compounding and growing in your account. A Roth IRA says, why don't you, we'll let you pay your taxes on this money up front, but uh, the money will stay in an account. And when that money comes out, after being reinvested over many years and hopefully growing, you don't have to pay taxes on it. So a Roth makes sense um, when you have many years ahead of you. So young people setting up Roth accounts makes a lot of sense. I mean, there's lots of stories of people who put $5,000 into a Roth. They invest in one of these companies you mentioned before, Facebook or oh. Google, and they, you know, at the end of the day, they have tax-free millions of dollars that come to them in their retirement. That's that's the kind of love story that everyone wants out there. Um, the and and you can set up 
your solo 401k and your self-directed IRA with Roth-like structures. And again, it just means you pay the taxes upfront at the point where you create the fund. The Roth IRA, was that named after, was it, was it a senator? Was yes, a Senator Roth from Delaware. And as we face an election with another senator from Delaware, uh, I, I do have to mischievously remind everyone that Delaware is the Liberia of corporations. Uh, Delaware is where every company wants to be situated because it has the laxest corporate laws in the country. And Senator Roth, um, you know, who was representing all of the banks eager to take in, you know, more, more uh, uh, kinds of um, uh, self-directed investment activities created this Roth option about 25 years ago. Okay, so let me ask you this. How does someone go about setting these plans up? Can you provide our listeners with the steps? You know, of course, I encourage them to get your book and learn more about these uh, the ways in which to make these types of or set up these accounts and investments and retirement accounts. And what kind of institutions or banks or brokerage houses would you recommend them to go to? Yes. So um, one, besides my book, one other recommendation that I have for people interested in this is there's a website um, that a few of us set up a couple of years ago called The Next Egg, thenextegg.org. And it's a place where several hundred people who are uh, working through their first you know, self-directed IRA or solo 401k are learning together how to how to go through all of this. And it's, you know, I mean, obviously you can go out and hire an attorney and spend several thousand dollars and learn all this the hard way, but this would be a lot cheaper and easier. Um, this, but, but the real steps are, um, there are, I mean, there are probably several thousand, you know, brokerage houses that offer what they call self-directed IRAs. Mm -hmm. But in fact, when you look at the fine print, uh, most of the things you would want to invest in are excluded. So you have to really look at a more carefully vetted list of self-directed IRAs. And I have, I have a couple of links in my book where you can go and you can find a list of about 200 companies that are good providers of this. And if you're a member of the next egg, um, you, you know, you can get a solo 401k for $250, which is an amazing price on a solo 401k. Um, so I should also say with solo 401ks, the numbers of providers out there who really let you do all the options we talked about are about, there's about 40 of these companies. And again, in my book, I have a list of those companies and that can lead you, you know, and each of those companies will sort of lead you through the steps. But the basic steps are, you know, uh, you do some paperwork to, uh, set up an account. Some of the paperwork is if it, with a solo 401k, it's in your bank. With a self-directed IRA, it's with the company that's providing the service. Uh, you then you you know write checks to put money in the account, 
And then you start making personal decisions about what, where you want to do your investment. And, you know, depending on the type of investment, the paperwork might be simple, say, to put money into uh, a stock, or it could be very complicated, say, if it was a real estate deal. Mm-hmm. So let me ask you, Michael, okay, so I live in Los Angeles. And what if I wanted to start my own self-directed IRA account? How would I go about looking for local investments? I mean, there's plenty of local businesses, but what what do I look for? You know, why would I pick one over the other? So where do I begin? Um, yeah, so one of the things I do in my books is I have like a, a list of eight steps that I think you could do in order to answer that question. So we don't have time to go through all of them, but let's just mention a couple of them. Um, One is is that there is a wonderful website called investibule.co. And Investibule is a consolidator site so that there's like 40 plus federally licensed portals that do crowdfunding. And and, And the data from those sites goes into Investibule and you could plug in California and immediately see, oh, here are the 50 companies from California uh, that are raising small amounts of money uh, on federal crowdfunding sites. And I'm going to guess that probably a third of those are in and around Los Angeles. Um, So I I wanted to ask you that because my next question to you was, because you write so much about crowdfunding and so many interesting ways to do that in ways that I never even knew about. I mean, I always thought about somebody wants to, I, I didn't know how far and wide crowdfunding could go. Do you know? Yeah. Yes, and, and actually today is a very important day in crowdfunding. Um, so, uh, but just a little bit of background, you know, a lot of people when they think about crowdfunding are thinking about donation crowdfunding. Yes, or, that's, that's yeah. really what I thought of. So. Yeah, and more about this. And there's billions of dollars that you know projects and businesses and people have raised with like you know, uh, GoFundMe or um, other 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 kinds of of donation crowdfunding sites. But what I'm talking about is investment crowdfunding. Uh, where companies or projects are raising capital and paying a rate of return, interest on a loan or appreciation on stock or perhaps dividends. Um, And this was legalized when President Obama signed into law the Jobs Act in 2012. Um, It got implemented in 2016 And in the four years since, about half a million Americans have put $340 million into 1,500 companies all around the country. But most of these companies are very small um, and very connected to their communities. And one of the most striking observations is that the biggest beneficiaries have been companies run by women and people of color. In other words, those companies that have been most systematically excluded from conventional capital markets have been the biggest beneficiaries of this change in the law. Um, and the way what the law says is, you know, up until today, any company could raise $1 million uh, in the course of a year, and any individual could write a check to that company for as much as $2,200 
via these federal portals that put the deals together. Today, literally today, a few hours ago, the Securities and Exchange Commission raised the amount on crowdfunding from 1 million to 5 million. It is a game changer. And so uh, I'm dancing on the roof today. You are, boy. That's exciting. It's changing the whole landscape of the way in which we've, I've certainly perceived crowdfunding. I, I, I never saw all of these possibilities. Is that something someone like myself should look to, to identify local investments? I mean, it's one of the ways. Yeah, I think if you, so again, I'll, I'll kind of just say the hierarchy is number one, are you in good financial shape and are your kids in good financial shape? If the answer is no, focus on those things first. If you're a homeowner and you, you know, you've invested in all of the things you want with your home, then you're in great financial shape. So if we check all those boxes, yes, I think looking for these other companies. And here's another piece of advice, which is people saw, you know, if you were to ask your financial advisor, should I do this kind of investing? And they say, no, 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 most local businesses fail. And they've made a very common mistake. It's not true that most local businesses fail. It's true that most local business startups fail. So your job, Aura, as a would-be local investor is to find existing companies that have been around five or 10 years, proven business model, goods and services you love. They're the ones you want to invest in. Yeah, and I sometimes I look at these small businesses. I'm like, oh God, I hope they never. I hope they never close. So why not be somebody who goes, well, why don't you take that hope and do something about it to support them? That's you know? right. And I want to. I'll give you a story that's not in the book, but it, it's very much um, in the spirit of this. When COVID first hit, um, my partner and I said, you know, we really should do something to help at least a couple of local businesses around here. So my favorite um, restaurant in in the Washington area is called Busboys and Poets, a combination restaurant bar. <laughs> Great, it is a great name based wow. on Langston Hughes's poem. And Fantastic. love it. And uh, so uh, we we estimated that in the course of a typical year, you know, we'll spend a thousand dollars eating out there. So we wrote a check of a thousand dollars to the proprietor, a fellow named Andy Shalal, and said, We hope this will you you know help in a very small way, help you to retain an employee or you know. Mm -hmm help with your cash flow. He was so thrilled, he gave us a $1,200 gift card. In other words, we got a 20% rate of return on our investment. Yeah. Um, and honestly, this is what we should be doing with all of our local businesses now. We should all be thinking about how can we do some pre-purchasing with them to keep them alive and make sure they make it through this awful pandemic. You know, Michael, that so resonates for me because I'm thinking now more than ever, it is so needed. And when you look at your own community where you are or those types of restaurants or businesses that you really love, you know, that you that you like to go to, what are the other ways in which you can support them, Do you know, rather than just, you know, tell them how great they are and hope that they'll be able to stick around because now is harder than it's ever been for those small businesses. So I love the idea of, you know, starting within your own community 
And I think that's the way in which we can see businesses flourish and grow. Talk to us a little bit, because I see that we're running out of time, about a DIY, do-it-yourself account. So I just use the term uh, DIY to, to put DIY. together the discussion of solo 401ks and self-directed IRAs. It, it's interesting that they, when you look at their rules, they are 98% the same. There's a couple of things that are different about them. So that's why I just use that term in the book to uh, group them together and simplify the discussion. Okay, so talk to us a little bit about, you know, which is always another interesting thing, and I, I know we just have a little bit of time left, about financing your own business, okay? And is it true that your dream is to create a moose petting zoo? <laughs> partners is to train as, sheepers? As you can see behind <laughs> me, there's my intern, Murgatroyd. Um, I am a moose, moose aficionado. I collect moose stuff. My nickname is Moose. Um, and uh, so, yes, Moose Petting Zoo, that would be extraordinary. I don't know that's if I'll get there. dream for you. You know, <laughs> the, the Eureka, I've arrived. I'm actually yes. my my. I mean, friend. it's nothing would give me greater pleasure. Um, <laughs> but for those but, that uh, do want to, you know, whether it's a petting, a, a, you know, yeah. petting business, zoo or whatnot, so one of the cool things you can do with a self-directed IRA is you can create your own LLC in it. Um, and the money in your IRA can be used for that LLC. You can't pay yourself a salary, but you can work, work on that LLC. You could hire other people for that LLC. And you don't pay any taxes on it because it's tax-free as a part, as a uh, as an entity that's owned by your IRA. Mm. So my petting zoo will be in my IRA. <laughs> that is so cool. You've really got my wheels turning. <laughs> you really, you really have. So listen, we're, we just got a couple minutes left. Let's end with some parting words of wisdom for preparing for the future. How should we saddle up as you say? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So I, as I said before, think modestly, okay? Think about what your needs are, your kids' needs, and think about using some of the money that you're, in my view, uh, not doing the best you can by putting it in Wall Street, and think about how to move some of that money to your own needs and your kids' needs, needs and your community's needs. Not all of it, but just start with, say, 5 or 10%. Mm -hmm. Second thing is think about these easy ways of supporting local business. So what I did with adoption of busboys and poets is an example. Um, but I also think that there's lots of things that a community could do. So, I mean, I, I work with a lot of local governments and I'm encouraging them, put up on your website a list of all the companies that are doing crowdfunding, that are in the jurisdiction, so that if anyone goes to the local website, they can say, ah, this is where I can do local investing. Um, you might also, in, this, in the um, Canadian province of New Brunswick, 
they enacted a 50% provincial tax credit for local investors. Every dollar you put into a local business leads to 50 cents off your taxes. There is a similar bill to do this pending in the Michigan State Legislature. Uh, but you don't have to do it at the state level. You could do it in Los Angeles, you know, create some property tax credits for people who do local investment. Well, I'd love to get busboys and poets here in Los Angeles and then I can invest in them here. No, there's there's plenty well, yeah you've got i mean you've got great equivalents of busboys and poets i mean i so love that name it's so it is it is a great name in a great place and if you come here to washington i will take you to dinner there uh you betcha okay post covid that's gonna be one of the first you know go-to places i'm gonna want to do so i'm gonna take you up on that excellent michael i want to thank you so much for being our guest today and if our listeners want to know more about you and what you're doing and you know whatever else that you can help them with you know based on this conversation today where can they find you so um i do my blogging at www.michaelh, middle initial, Schumann, S-H-U-M-A-N, dot com. Um, I also um, am reachable by email, schumann at igc.org. Uh, I'm on Twitter and at Smallmart. And the book is Put Your Money Where Your Life Is. Great title. So again, thank you so much, Michael, for being here with us today. And thank you listeners for being here with Michael and I. I hope this conversation really got you thinking about some new innovative ways to invest your money that you might have never known about before. It certainly got my wheels spinning. I highly recommend getting Michael's book. Here it is. Put your money where your life is. How to invest locally using self-directed IRAs and solo 401ks. And, you know, read it, get more educated about making some wise decisions for yourself about how you can invest your money and the different retirement options you have. Lots to get out of his book. It's really, really very illuminating. So again, thank you, Michael. Thank you, listeners. And until we meet again, stay safe, stay present, and stay kind. <laughs>